can hear you loud and clear. Uh, there was a picture that you put up. Is it snowy where you are, or is it snow yeah, somewhere? Yeah, we, we had a crazy, <laughs> a crazy day of snow today. It's been quite mild. I mean, I, I live in Norway. Can I just note that the first thing that I did before we began was talk weather. That can only have been between someone brought up in England and someone who is in England now. Do you find that when you meet Norwegians, weather is the opening gambit? What else is there to talk about? It's one of the more... <laughs> I don't know if it's one of the more positive things to talk about, but the alternative nowadays is uh, not necessarily so positive. So mm. it tends to be the first thing you talk about, especially when it's a crazy uh, weather event as we've had here in Oslo today. I would open... I'd open what? with the career of Alexander Ryback. I think that's where I'd go. <laughs> he must be on telly like every week with his violin. He's been on recently. Do you know? I think he's making a comeback. I'm not entirely sure what it was. Well, it is. Um, we're in. We're up to Eurovision season. Yeah, so, he might. He may well be. I guess that's when he comes out of the, the woodwork. Yeah, that was in 2009. So that's 12 years. He's been his his uh, high point. Twelve years ago, you weren't even in South America. That's how long ago this is. Not strictly true. Uh, I actually the uh, Eurovision final in two thousand and nine. I was um, I was in Argentina. I was in Buenos Aires oh, on kidding. the backpacking trip that inspired me to move there permanently. Ah. And I met a couple of Norwegian girls. They stayed. They were in the same dorm in the hostel I was staying at, and they refused to do anything that evening because they wanted to watch the Eurovision. Some contest. I remember being on a train back from Brighton and I had to follow it via Twitter or via friends sending uh, Blackberry messages to me on the train. <laughs> but I never, and amusingly, I was coming back from Brighton. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Where I grew up. Oh, really? So, Is that uh, where you grew up? I didn't know you grew up in Sussex. I grew up in uh, a town called Burgess Hill. I know Burgess Hill. Yeah, I say Brighton because um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's more glamorous, it's more. Um, Positive, I guess. No. Hey, there is a, a best selling author. The best selling author in Britain today is from Haywards Heath, Richard Osman. Oh, that's the rival. That's the rival town. Well, when it comes to books, I don't think Burgess Hill has produced a finer writer than I'm not going to pronounce your surname correctly. It's either Hilland or Highland. Yeah, if it's in English, it's Highland. I was always called Highland or Highlander at school. But if you want to try the Norwegian way, it's Hilland. Uh, you, you were quite close. That's good. Close. So I was both. Um, Ilad. M- one yeah. of my favourite songwriters is Sandra Lerke, and his surname looks yeah. like Lurch. Yeah, Lerke. From, from Bergen. Uh, which bit of yeah. Norway are you in now? I mean, also, I'm on the other side of the country. Oh, um, I'd love to go. The... I'd love to go to Norway. Best known, best known for the Peace Accords. Yes. And for being... Which football clubs play in Oslo? I can't remember. Are there any football well, clubs in Oslo? Yeah, there are. Uh, slim pickings nowadays. Ballerdinger is one of the big ones. Um, the team that John Carew... John Carew didn't see the start at Ballerdinger, but he was, as, as a 17-year-old, scored a hat-trick at Besiktas in quite an important game for Ballerdinger, Got then and won the Norwegian Cup with Ballerdinger before going to Rosenborg, before going to Valencia. Oh. It's the biggest, one of the biggest three or four clubs in the country. There's also Lean, which is where John Obi Mikel was playing under Henning Badik, uh, but they went bankrupt and got th- thrown out of the league, much like Rangers did 10 years ago. However long ago, that was seven, eight years yeah, ago. Yeah, seven, eight years ago. And then uh, 
Lillestrøm and Stubbeck are just outside the city limits. They're technically not also, but they're um, medium-sized teams. The football over here is not very appealing, to be perfectly honest. Well, that's Norwegian why... people follow Norwegian teams. Well, that's why people clamber onto ferries and planes and go to Liverpool and Manchester. It's, it, it's unbelievable the, to the, ex, the extent to which um, Scandinavians generally, let's say, support English teams over the local team. David Goldblatt's written a book, and his conclusion is football around the world can't survive locally because eyeballs are driven in Asia, it's to the English clubs, in Africa it's to the Spanish clubs. For my argument, my book that I wrote that I'm not here to talk about is just pick a team local to you, whatever the level, and support it. So if you had to go to Valarenga or to Lillestrom, which one would you go to? Or Starbeck? Yeah, I'm a Wall- I, I'm in a, I'm a Wallerdinger fan. Um, that's my team here. It shouldn't be. I was born in Badham, which is actually Starbeck country. There is a team called Badham. Uh, it's on the west side of Oslo. So the west side of Oslo, Lean, is probably the most popular club, or should be Stubbeck. But I didn't grow up here. When I came back as an 18-year-old to work, I worked on the east side of the uh, of the city. I met a lot of Wallerenga fans. I went to a Wallerenga game. I was just completely drawn in by their... By, they have an ultra movement. They have... Uh, to compare them to Sao Paulo would be far too um, sensationalistic or too extreme. Yeah, there's no problem. There's no Barrett Brothers. No, the Barrett Brothers. No, there's probably twenty or thirty people involved in the the ultra movement in, in Norway. It's not a lot of people, but they do make an effort with Tifo. They do have um, flares, even though they're not allowed to. They do make an effort, but they they've just recently built Wallering. They've just recently built a fifteen thousand seat stadium, and it's probably too big for them. There was a game last season or the season before last, let's say, when there were supporters um, with only three thousand people. So they built a stadium which probably too big for Norwegian football, unfortunately. Mm, maybe they'll hold some international games there. Well, we have the National Stadium. Bordering used to play, they had to rent the National Stadium. That's oh, 25, wow. now 28,000, so that was far too big no, that's anyway. Enormous. There was a goal. Yeah, it, it's quite big. It, there was a golden time in Norwegian football about 10, 15 years ago where the local TV, or our version of ITV, TV2, put a lot of money into Norwegian football, made it seem quite glamorous, and a lot of people went to the stadiums. So there were times when the average crowd was about 10,000. So it wasn't too big then. But as you say, and David Goldblatt's quote there, all eyes are drawn to the Premier League or other leagues. The disadvantage, I guess, with being so close uh, and having relatively high salaries and the ease of which we can make it over, you know, you could have a local team and support Liverpool or United Mm. or whoever it might be, and do both. Go to your local team and watch the TV when your English team's playing. But because of the proximity and the relative cheap flights and everything, a lot of people fly over almost every other week. I... So that does then to the detriment of local football. I was going to say something very stupid about five seconds ago, and then I remembered. Because I support a team who who's... Number seven shirt is occupied by Philip Zinkernagel, who right. who helped Bodo Klimt qualify for Europe this season because Bodo Klimt are the reigning champions of Norwegian football. Not Molder or Rosenborg or Tromso, my favourite team, because I remember watching Chelsea go to Tromso and play in the snow. But yeah. this Bodo Klimt story, 
seems to have occupied a lot of hipster minds for the last year. Would you say that Zinkenagel leaving is symptomatic of Norwegian football? It's a step, yeah, of course, it's a stepping stone, isn't it, for all of them? Whether you're, whether it's uh, a Dane going to Norway. I mean, he got lucky because he picked a good team to go to, I guess. But it's a stepping stone even for players who go to Rosenborg, Rosenborg or, or my team, Wallerdinger. Uh, you don't expect there to be very long if you're a good player, I guess. That was the idea with going back a decade, 15 years, John Obi Mikel and a lot of Nigerians who played for Lean. Even South Americans came over to play in Norway at that time. Matias Almeida, the River Plate player, played two games for Lean, as did, I always forget his name, but I know he's called the Bear. He played, he's uh, the striker for River Plate who played in the final. As you Google, I will tell you that the yeah. current Norwegian squad has a total of two players who play in Norway Christiansen, the goalkeeper, who's uncapped, and Veton Bereisha or Berisha, who's at Viking. Um, yeah. Other recent call-ups include the goalkeeper of Rosenberg and Ud, and uh, Bodoglimt's Marius Loder, who's uncapped, Stian Rode-Gregersen of Mulder, Evan Hofland, who's quite experienced, Henriksen, who's quite experienced, Patrick Berg, who's uncapped, uh, and then, of course, a kid called Erling Haaland, who we'll try and talk about as little as possible. So, yes, Norwegian football is delighted, not just of Haaland, but that a Norwegian is managing one of the biggest clubs in the world. Uh, are Norway as a country rooting for Ole Gunnar? Yeah, it's, it's, it's divisive in a way because it becomes so ridiculous. It becomes very over the top, the amount of focus that he gets. Probably the highest profile Norwegian certainly of his generation of the 90s and into the 2000s and it being the most popular team in uh, the most popular English team in Norway there's uh, an awful lot of hysteria and focus on it to the point where there's a counter reaction of people who say that come on can we talk about something else we have this concept in Norwegian called Nisselua which is Santa Claus's red hat or it's a red hat generally Nisselua where we get a little bit thinking that or we exaggerate a little bit how well maybe Solskjaer is doing Haaland's different because of course he is doing exceptionally well so you can't you can't you almost can't exaggerate how well he's doing but there is there is an awful lot of focus there was a time where there was a, an Ole Gunnar Solskjaer league table so the league table was calculated from the point at which he began as Manchester United coach trainer manager whatever you want to call it nowadays head coach um and showing that United would have been top of that table had he been manager from the beginning of the season. It got a bit over the top. Yeah, they, they, didn't, they didn't lose. They, he had the golden touch. Yeah. And I think second yeah. place would be an unbelievable result for him. And with Darren Fletcher now behind the scenes and Nicky Butt working with him, I think United in a good place. The only problem is that the biggest ranked Norwegian playing in England, uh, let me have a look at this, well, there's a couple. There's one who's at Coventry, Leo Ostigard, is there. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah the, the one that uh, we know is Josh King, who's moved to Everton. Uh, but in, yeah. pertinently for you, could you foresee a long time ago that Martin Odegaard would end up competing with Emil Smith-Rowe at your beloved Arsenal? I've dreamt about it for a long time. And that's, that's, this is now me being... A little bit Nissa Lua, just wanting, wanting a Norwegian uh, Arsenal. 
I was born in 85, so in 19, when George Graham was still at the club, I would have been nine, going on 10. I think it was sacked in 95. So I would have just, would have just turned 10. I wrote a letter to Arsenal saying, I think you should get no more Norwegians, right? <laughs> uh, and they were very kind. They sent me back um, a thank you letter with a, a merchandise catalogue. I thought they were going to send you a signed did... photo of Anders Limpar. Yeah, or more fittingly, probably Paul Lederson or, or Jorn Jensen. Never, they no. Were, of course, the players. Isn't it incredible how everyone's forgotten about that? It involved Rune Hogg, the agent, who I think was Solskjaer's agent, yeah. and George Graham taking some money he shouldn't have done, and then came Bruce Rioch, and then came whoever it was. I can't remember his name. Prof- professorial guy. So I haven't really spoken to an Arsenal fan in the football library. Uh, we should say you've written this book, Tears at the Bombolero. Uh, would you write a second book called Tears at the Emirates? Because that's about all you have at the Emirates these days. Yeah, it's probably more fitting, isn't it? Uh, yeah, many Arsenal fans. I think I think Fever Pitch is um, probably you know he shed a lot of tears as well. They weren't all positive. I mean, we've been spoiled. And again, born in '85, started watching football in around '94, '95. I've been spoiled as an Arsenal fan, and I realise that a lot, a lot of Arsenal fans um, of my age or younger have only experienced, well, had up until a point. Uh, a long time ago already now. Yep. Only experienced um, trophies, or, Champions Leagues. You know, a lot. Of, yeah, exactly. A lot of positive stuff. And then after that, of course, the comparison is extreme. You won but the FA Cup you, last season. I'm quite a positive Arsenal fan, so I, I, I accept that we're not really going to be competing for leagues for a, a long time. And that's not necessarily due to anything that we've done wrong. It's more to do with the environment, the, the Premier League as it is today. And of course, we were hum, hamstrung a little bit by the stadium, which it shows now it's apparent that that's not, it wasn't necessary to build a huge stadium to compete with Manchester United because the TV money is, is so, so ridiculous that it's a drop in the ocean, the, the number of people you get into the stadium. It's, I think your, and I'm sorry to say this, your immediate competitors are West Ham, who got their stadium for about threepence halfpenny. And the fact that Arsenal had to spend something like £600 million, whereas Sullivan and Gold got gifted the Olympic Stadium, is a catastrophe that I don't think Arsenal can get back. Equally catastrophic, what is Nicola Pepe doing at Arsenal? I actually quite like him. There's obviously a lot of potential there. He had a very good season in France when he came. I think it had to be, I think we have to remember with any, certainly new player to the Premier League, whether it's Arsenal or other teams, I think we have to remember that the last 18 months has been, or at least certainly the last year, 12 months, uh, with the Premier League. In fact, this time, the 11th of March last season was the day that Manchester City Arsenal was called off because of Arteta's oh, uh, yes. coronavirus test, yeah. I believe. And they came a few months before that, or at least six months before that, under Unai Emery. A bit turbulent. Unai Emery sacked, whether he was bullied by the players or, you know, whatever the circumstances were, he left. And then Arteta came in after three years, but Arteta came in and then coronavirus hit and it's very stop-start since then. So, yes, we would we would have hoped that he hit the ground running and, and maybe taken a little bit less time to adapt to the Premier League, but I have faith long-term. I think we have to stick by him because we're not, I mean, we're not going to sell him for 20, 30 million. No, you take that, that would be suicidal. Of a loss. Yeah. So you have to you have to give him you have to give him the chance now, and he's been he has been a lot better recently, but he's also lost his place because uh, other players are performing better, which is how it should be. 
Yeah. I think I think he'll come good. A shame this season that Maitland Niles and Willock have been deemed surplus to the squad, and obviously it is better that they get football. Someone said, I bet Joe Willock and Ainsley Maitland Niles didn't think they'd be playing for Fulham against West Brom. Uh, this time last yeah. year. Hopefully Odegaard will slot in to replace the forgotten German. I, I genuinely can't remember the guy's name. Uh, but, but I have seen him play at the Emirates and he was unbelievable. Languid. Very languid. Yeah. That player. He had some amazing moments in an Arsenal shirt and, uh, and it's sad that it ended how it did. Let's just say. Well, as we'll find out, Mesut Ozil does play a part in Tears at the Bombonera which is your whistle-stop tour of being in South America. Why exactly did you leave? It was something nagging. I, again, backpacked in 2009. Just, uh, I spent a month in Brazil. I would travel with a friend from school. Uh, spent a month in Brazil and a month in Argentina. So it's actually quite a, a short trip to South America. Most people maybe do five or six months and do all of it in one go, let's say, doing uh, in inverted yeah. commas, because you can't really do much in six months on, on a continent that size. But there was something about Buenos Aires uh, and Argentina in, I mean, I love Brazil as well, but I always wanted to learn Spanish. And I had this real affinity for the city. I, I only spent a week there in 2009. I can't really put my finger on what it was. I just really liked the city, the vibe, the whatever it is. And not to mention the football, but, it, you know, I barely scratched the surface on the football when I was there in 2009. So, um, I had this nagging feeling. I came home, UK, that is, and then ended up moving back to Norway in 2010. Got into a relationship nearing the end of my 20s. And uh, and when the relationship ended, I thought, well, this is it. I have to, I have, I'm 28. I have to do it. I have to go to Argentina for a year or two, learn Spanish, scratch this it, the, the itch. And, um, and one year became two, two became six. And they're all filled between the pages of this excellent book uh, which is out now so firstly congratulations uh, and two when did you pitch it to pitch and what did they advise you to do because you're talking about memoir football uh, as it says you you know the five things that you're talking about football travel culture history ground hopping uh, how do you help with pitches help convert that into a 350 page book yeah well pitch advised me <laughs> tried to encourage me to aim for 70,000 words it wasn't it wasn't really meant to be uh, quite as as vast as it as it is but as I think we'll discover during this chat there's there are so many uh, stories or details to to include that it became it became a vast document in the end in terms of what I had on my computer now I pitched it to them pitched it to pitch as you say uh, this time last year probably around March time last year I'd been working on it for six months at the time and I had no I had no intention of writing a book this is part of the and that's probably what a lot of people say I don't know cliche um, I sat down one day to write specifically about one Boca Juniors River Plate game that I'd been to I just wanted to put down on paper what I'd experienced because I've told the story so many times both in South America when I was traveling in South America, people would ask me all the time, oh, you've lived in Buenos Aires. Have you been to see Boca versus River? So I'd end up talking about that one game again and again. And then coming home in May 2019, this, home this time being Oslo, seeing mates and family members, and again, talking about that one specific game. Um, 
I sat down to write about that and I didn't know what I was going to do with it, maybe put it online as a blog and people could peruse it at their leisure. Once you write down the basic details that you remember, all these other details come forth. And uh, within a few months of, of writing about Boca River, I had probably 20 or 30,000 words already and I thought, well, I'm not sure what to do with this. I'll write to some publishers and see what they say or if they're interested and, and pitch were keen. I can't believe there hadn't been a book in Pitch's stable about that. There are books about many other things. Did you have uh, Pitch books? But obviously the reason why I approach Pitch is because they're the best and they're football specific mainly. But Dad, you had books on your shelf that were published by them. I was recommended Pitch by Matt McGinn who is the author of Against the Elements. Yeah, I spoke to him. What a great Iceland. book. We, we, met each other, we know each other from Buenos Aires. In fact, we, a couple of the games I reference and talk about in my own book, Matt was there. I know Matt from his time in Buenos Aires. He was only there, I think he was there for a year, probably just a little bit less or a little bit more than a year. But it was Matt McGinn who put me on to uh, recommended pitch specifically. His book, of course, is uh, a pitch publishing book as well. So it's... Uh, it's all down to Matt. Against the Elements is basically about uh, a land and its people, brackets football. Would you say that yeah. your book, Tears at the Bombonera, is about people and land, brackets, and also football? <laughs> yeah, probably football, brackets, people, land, and... And, uh, and Soul. Myself, I was going to say. Um it is, of course, football dominated. I mean, football dominates everybody's life in South America. More specific, again, more specifically, Argentina. There are areas of uh, areas of Bolivia and Peru that are probably completely oblivious to the game for for whatever reason, for their own reasons, of course. But Argentina, Buenos Aires in particular, football is um, is absolutely everywhere, and it was a, um, the major driver. It's probably wrong to say, but. Uh, I played football two or three or four times a week with uh, in that kind of pickup game, the American pickup game culture, where it's just a list of players on Facebook or a website, and you sign up mm-hmm. play with randoms every time. A lot of my social network came through that group, having beers afterwards, organising which games to go to the weekend with a couple of those people. Matt McGinn, of course, uh, one of them I met Matt through that football group, watching Copa America the World Cup. And then I worked as an English teacher and the discussion with your, my students with, um, between, well, I had students from eight to 70, but if you narrow it down, the majority were between 12 and 19, let's mm. say, that age range, adolescents. All they'd want, well, the majority would only want to talk about football. And as long as it was in English, I could justify doing it. But um, I tended to go to class a good 15 or 20 minutes early to get the football out of the way mm, uh, so that we could focus on the, the class because I didn't want any of the you know the small minority of kids who didn't want to talk about football to go home and tell their parents that no, that's it's not what they're paying about for football the whole time. No. <laughs> it's not what they're well, as, as I say as long as it's in English I could, you can justify it I guess but yeah. well, I never chose to, to follow one Argentinian team specifically so I, I could kind of hover above uh, for want of a better word banter uh, which is a horrible class. Yeah. It is a horrible word. Could help me find a better one. The ribbing. 
Um, sounds almost worse. Um, well, well, it's lubrication. You you call football a social lubricant, which I like. Yeah. So yeah, to yeah. to kind of oil, put oil and water together. I mean, because a lot of as we see with Arsenal fan TV, God bless Arsenal fan TV, because they have shown yeah. the world what a particular football fan is like, and yeah, they're earning money. No one will remember them, but this is the moment in the history of football culture where. Someone in Rose C is given a microphone and somehow has a yeah. career. Do you have a favourite Arsenal fan TV pundit? Johnny, as an Arsenal fan, I don't watch it. It's, um, it's yeah, not it's for not us. for you. Yeah, I know. It's for all. It's for the other nineteen teams in the league, and, <laughs> and of course, if you're a well, uh, I say in the league, it could be Championship, it could be League One. Everybody seems to like it, but it's certainly not for us. They make a living off the all the shit that happens at our football club. Yeah. That's always been the case. Negativity sells a lot more than good news stories, uh, whether it's in the news generally or they just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Because uh, I, I remember actually on, I think it's, I don't know if I should mention other podcasts, but Ask Blog is the number one Arsenal podcast going. Uh, Andrew Mangan, an Irish guy, excellent podcast for, for Arsenal fans. He, I think he had on. But at the beginning of the project, Arsenal Fan TV, I think he had the people behind it on, and they, they, and it was a lady talking about the concept, and it sounded like a great concept. Um, but at some point, quite early on, they figured that the best way to make money, or, or the, the videos on YouTube that are getting the most views, are the, are the, the incredibly negative ones, the, the most extreme. Oh no, I've just, ones. So, I've just realised. Piers Morgan's going to be an Arsenal pundit now. Oh, oh this is awful. TV. Yeah, they, they'll give him a job. But obviously, he'll get another job by the time this goes out. But yeah, yeah. have you? Yeah, well, obviously, you're on Twitter at Bombonera Tears, and also as yourself. So you will have seen yeah. from across the pond the nonsense going on here. But yes, I won't mention yeah. him. That just dates it. That we're talking in the week uh, that that Piers left yeah. and, and you're very um, I did notice that you're a fan of Alan Davis and the Tuesday Club yeah Alan Davis is uh, I, I, there's, he doesn't, there's not a word that I disagree with and I only listen for him the other guys are just well was that Boyd Hilton just to give, no no that's uh, that was footballistically Arsenal that, that was I don't know what they're doing now those, that lot it's um, Ian Stone Keith Dover Tyre Abuda Damon, Damon Harris, I think, are the main, the main rabble. Uh, a lot of Arsenal fans enjoy the Tuesday Club a lot more when Arsenal are doing badly because they enjoy Alan Davis's rants. So I get it. I mean, and that's not a sensationalist thing at all because he's, it's from the heart and it's genuine. He goes to games. Well, he used to go to games. Yeah. Home and away across Europe. You know, he's a genuine Arsenal fan and he knows this stuff. So the fact that he has a rant every now and again is entertaining even for Arsenal fans even though it means that something's gone wrong. <laughs> yes. If you know what I mean. And uh, yes, the Tuesday Club and Alan Davis, is, who has his own book, which came out, I think it's out in paperback shortly. He had a very unhappy childhood and he's an Arsenal fan. I don't think those two are interlinked. Um, <laughs> at least I hope not. Because they're... they're and it, Arsenal are one of the better football teams in the country, but wherever you are now, ninth, not good enough. But I just uh, wonder if on Monday... Fans of Boca Juniors and River Plate will 
have the same kind of reaction or whether they will arm themselves and go to the training ground. Because Argentinian football, as we'll talk about more in the second half, is at the ultras level a bit more than Alan Davis having a rant. Absolutely. It's, uh, there are no, it's not a joke over there. What's the Badabadaba element is, is kind of fascinating for us. It's, it's, uh, it's not too strong to say that it's a cancer on, on the football over there. I think I have a, a Dutch mate who I met in Argentina from that same football group who's an Utrecht fan. And uh, Utrecht had a visit from their ultras recently. And it seems to work wonders because their results are much more positive now. I think they won 6 0 the other week. So there is, there is something about an ultra group going to visit the players to have a constructive word, let's say. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure to what extent in the Netherlands cultures threaten violence, but I guess that's kind of suggested <laughs> without them having to say so. Uh, but in Argentina, the Valladolid are the reason why there are no way fans. Um, it's the reason why countries crippled if you want to expand, extend that out to the to kind of represent the corruption of Argentine, in Argentinian society. You note that they have far too much control and in fact they double as henchmen or bodyguards. I know in Italian football from what uh, James Montague has written, his book 1312 is out in paperback uh, imminently, that element is not nice. So the casual fan is put off in the same way that the casual fan was put off in the 70s and 80s by the firms in British football. Exactly. The, the, I mean, I never felt threatened at a football game in Argentina. I, and I didn't, you know, you hear stories, but you don't feel the threat necessarily. The biggest game in Peru, for example, Alianza Lima against Universitario, um, at that wonderful stadium where the Copa Libertadores final in 2019 was held, people might remember. I watched it on the telly. El Monumental, as they call it. It was half full for their biggest game. And a lot of people said it was because of the threat of violence. They felt that it was unsafe going into the game, which is a, a pity. That's not really the case in Argentina anymore. It's because they banned away fans for the last uh, 2013, I think, eight years. We're going on a decade without away fans in Argentina. And of course, the necessity is that there were 45 teams in the first three or four divisions in, in Buenos Aires alone. That's an awful lot of football for the police to for the police to police, for the police to manage on a weekend. So the con and the Bayonavas are fighting amongst themselves. But they haven't even played well the Boca Juniors to use those two most famous clubs as examples. Uh, there are different uh, factions of Bayonara vying for power within within a supporter group. So when you add away fans into the mix and the uh, and the extent or the number of games over a weekend is far too much for the police to handle. So they're forced to sell players abroad uh, to the extent at which they do. We're talking about Norwegian football earlier. It's very similar in a way. Norwegian football loses its best talent very young because they can't compete in terms of money. Argentina can't, Argentina can't keep their best talent uh, for the same reason. Uh, they should be able to, to a greater extent than Norwegian football. Again, the way I would have take so much money out of the football or corrupt politicians, corrupt owners, presidents, whatever it might be, that uh, Mexico and the United States are now much more appealing destinations for these for young Argentinian players oh, yeah. uh, than even their own league. I don't know how to end the first half on a high, but I will ask this. 
your book Tis at the Bombonera, which we will talk about more fully in the second half. I wanted to get the Arsenal stuff out of the way first. But you yeah. dedicate the book to Raphael, Siri, Nicola and Frida. Who are they? Um, Siri and Frida are my nieces, my Norwegian, my, uh, my Norwegian nieces, let's say. My brother, Martin, has two girls. Raphael and Nicolas are two boys in Peru. My ex-girlfriend in Peru and Nina has two boys. And uh, the, the plan was to get them over to Norway. In fact, we were, we were together until fairly recently. There's no drama behind that, but it's, but it's dedicated to them because they're all of them. Well, Frida's the youngest. She's going to be six this uh, month. Raphael's the oldest at the age of 10. He's the next generation of football fans from both Norway and South America. So I felt it um, appropriate to dedicate it to them. Do you know, I'm really glad I asked. 